and welcome to Edie's Sustainable Business Covered podcast for a special episode to mark International Women's Day 2021. Coming up on today's episode, architect Joe Cowan outlines how cities, towns and neighbourhoods can be made more accessible as the net zero transition continues. National Grid's Head of UK Strategy, Claire Dichter, discusses the importance of gender balance in the energy transition. And Grosvenor UK and Ireland's Executive Director of Sustainability and Innovation, Tor Burrows, gives her views on choosing to challenge in sustainability in real estate asset management. Yes, a very warm welcome along to today's edition of the Sustainable Business Cover podcast. I'm Edie's senior reporter, Sarah George, and I'm delighted to be joined virtually in our, yes, exclusively virtual content studio um, by a very special guest who is Rianne Sherrington from Women in Sustainability. Good morning, Rianne. Good morning, Sarah. Lovely to be here. And lovely to have you. I, I realise it's been a long time since we, we caught up. How have you been? Uh, good. I think, like everybody, sort of um, a bit exhausted. Uh, we're looking to, looking forward to the end in sight. But I think compared to many others, I'm, I'm feeling very grateful, actually. Uh, so pretty good. Fantastic. And normally when I see you, it's at, at an event, usually in, in London. And I realise that that hasn't been the case um, for a while and that we've had some other um, WINS network leads on, but also virtually. So what has it been been like doing this this work throughout I guess 2020 and 2021 so far yes well I mean as you would appreciate you know doing your own events that when it became uh so apparent that the pandemic was going to stop everything uh you know we just stopped for a couple of weeks and just paused what what were we what could we do what were we going to do and I I took that opportunity to survey our network to survey the community to say what is it you'd like us to do and the the absolute um resounding feedback was we we still need you we really need to connect with other women uh this is going to be hard i think straight away even back in early april um women were recognizing the impact the pandemic was going to have on their working lives and Mm -hmm. that sheer juggle so i asked my hub leads what did they want to do and half wanted to to continue and to shift online and the other half said no because actually you know they couldn't do it they got very young children and in in fact one lead um because she got a lead lined um roof to her building couldn't actually get the tech working in order to actually go online to, to do online events so straight away we had a drop uh, lost 50 percent of our income um, but everybody wanted to go forward so that's what we did and it was a pleasant surprise to be honest because i was quite nervous our in-person events are you know coaching led it's all about creating that psychologically safe place for women to really share and i wasn't convinced to begin with that we'd be able to do that virtually you know um but the hub leads really stepped up. We really considered our approach. And I'm delighted to say, you know, over 2020, we probably brought together over two and a half thousand women uh, through all the various hub leads events. And in fact, we actually expanded with uh, Virginia starting up uh, in Hertfordshire. And we, we got going in New York, uh, our very first US hub. So, you know, it, it did seem to work that that virtual space is definitely working for us. And as we move forward now into 2021, we're, we're continuing with that. Um, we think it's you know it stopped people from having to travel so a great bonus and also it's allowing women to access that kind of connection 
that maybe they couldn't do previously because they were having to go home for childcare. Um, so I think it's filled a gap there, which we didn't quite realise. But of course, we are looking forward to getting back in person eventually because, you know, we all still we all still need that. We all still uh, still want that. So uh, and we also took the opportunity to launch our digital membership uh, in in April. And I, again, I was a bit nervous. Everybody was saying, why are you launching anything in this pandemic? But again, that feedback had that we had was very strong that women really wanted to still come together and to learn from each other and share however what I've seen happen over this last year is I sometimes that's not actually possible because they're, they're working so hard or maybe it's not been prioritized or seen as important by their employers well, I'm glad to hear some of that amazing good news, and I'm sure that we can touch on some of those really specific challenges um, a little bit bit later on. Um, but as we mentioned in the introduction, we've got an hour and we have three fantastic guest speakers to hear from. For this episode, I was debating having all of our guests being, you know, female sustainability professionals at end user organisations. Um, but in light of the theme for IWD 2021, which is Choose to Challenge, we're also going to hear from two of the women who are driving the UK's transition to low carbon and inclusive built environment and energy sectors, despite the fact that they don't have the literal word sustainability in their job title, which is something we've talked about a lot. Um, and our first guest today is Joe Cowan, co-founder and chief executive of the architectural practice by the same name. The practice states on its website that it takes a holistic approach to sustainability by not only embedding requirements on design, construction and in-use environmental impact, but by designing for the future we want to bring about in terms of lifestyle, community, accessibility and climate. This placemaking approach not only minimises the environmental impact of a development, but can facilitate the behaviour changes we all need to live lower carbon, healthier lifestyles in our cities and towns more broadly, like shifting to active transport, public transport and electric vehicles. All of this is crucially important to gender equality. A recent UN study found that around half of the global urban population can't access public transport or open green spaces in walking distance of their homes. And demographics including working class mothers, disabled women and women of colour were very much overrepresented in this cohort. Anyway, Joe is going to explain all of this far more eloquently than I ever could. So without further ado, let's play her interview. Yes, good afternoon, Joe. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on our podcast today. How are you? Very good. Uh, lovely to meet you, Sarah, and thank you very much for inviting us to join you on this very interesting discussion. No problem. And whereabouts are you calling calling in from today? I am actually calling in from the office um, where uh, I currently am and am working through lockdown with my two children who are homeschooling next to me. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm sure you must be swept off your feet <laughs> with with the kids and. Um, and the business. So thank you so much. Um, and yeah, just because I believe this is your first time podcasting with us or interviewing with us. Is that right? That is. This is the first time we've done one with you, but been listening to yours very avidly. So I feel very privileged to be invited to, to speak. It's always still odd to me when someone says that they listen, even though I can see the stats go up, <laughs> you sort of record it and then can't imagine it. Um, but yes, for the benefit of those who are listening who might not have heard of of your practice could we hear a little bit about it so specifically what motivated you to um to set it up and what what are your big aims in terms of sustainability here both social and environmental 
So we run a practice under the name Joe Cowan Architects. Um, and although my name is above the door, there's very much two co-founders to the practice, myself and Chris Wilkinson. We met at Roger Stoke Harbour and Partners. Where we worked to, together there for eight years. And, um, you know, we, we left in 2013 really with the ambition to take the real depth of, of experience that we'd had working pr principally in the residential sector at Rogers um, and the quality we'd learned in terms of architecture, but to look at to look at architecture in a new setting whereby we saw that the profession was changing and going to need to change beyond that of simply taking a client's brief and, and developing buildings and responses. I think as a practice, uh, we wanted to curate uh, an approach that was much more sort of co-aligned to understanding people. You know, mm -hmm. that's not just the people who, who live in our homes. We're predominantly a housing-based practice. Um, you know, the people who be using our buildings, people who be moving around them, um, the space in between buildings, but also, you know, the people who work in our team. And we have a, a, an amazing team of, uh, that's about 40 strong of architects and, and assistants, including master planners. Um, and really then to bring forward, I suppose, the next stage um, of our profession as a practice in being both co-aligned with our clients, but much more inherently aware of the, the social framework in which architecture was moving. Um, and, and as part of that really became our commitment to ESG, um, which is environmental social governance. So thinking about buildings for people, thinking about the people who are designing our buildings, opening up the profession and industry through our mentoring programs and our apprenticeships to try and curate um, a business whereby we embraced all of the, the aspects of the built environment. From an environmental point of view, I think, you know, for certainly 10 years ago, sustainability was almost seen as a nice to have um, mm. or a bolt on. And I think for us, it was much more fundamental than that. You know, we couldn't see good design as not being sustainable design, but not just sustainable in terms of, you know, trying to achieve net zero carbon through actually building a building, but actually how can we design to allow people to live in a more sustainable way and actually look at the operational side um, of net zero carbon. And I think that was that was very critical to us. So our approach to sustainability is, is actually systemic in terms of not just the materials that go into our buildings, but actually really promoting um, a pattern of behavior to allow people themselves to change that behavior and embrace sustainability in their everyday life. And then really it's been a challenge as a practice in how to ensure that governance comes through on all of our projects. Mm, I'd say that obviously this idea of coupling behavior change with operational impact and with impact to other parts of the life cycle is just becoming more front of mind. It was in the Committee on Climate Change Six Carbon Budget um, and other, other recommendations um, of, of that nature. And you mentioned how the conversation has changed um, recently and do, do you think that any of this is due to, to COVID-19? We've all seen the big headlines about oh um, Italy's going to have cycling only cities and the 20-minute town concept is being being picked up so have you seen conversations changing since this time think, last year? Yeah I mean I think the pandemic has had actually a profoundly positive effect on our uh, sort of connection to where we live you know and and the communities around us. So, you know, fundamentally, people have started to spend time or be within their communities at hours of the day they wouldn't normally have been so. You know, I, I believe we are all environmentalists at heart. You know, we all care about the place we live. We care about our future generations. You know, we care about our lifestyles and we care about our planet. And that's 
that's come forward, I think, by this massive drive for sort of very landscape integrated architecture. People want that natural, you know, interaction with green infrastructure. Um, and I think that has been so profound in the way that people will now choose a home. You know, who is the end user? Who's the customer? Because ultimately they drive the whole property market forward. We are building for people. So I think the, the COVID pandemic has changed our notion of home as being simply a place that we go to in evenings or we live, but actually the most fundamentally important part of our life in terms of our well-being and our lifestyle. We have the tremendous benefit that the predominant amount of work we do is, is within built to rent. And mm -hmm. built to rent provides probably the biggest opportunity in terms of changing or, or designing to facilitate, you know, a, a, a change in pattern of behavior, you know, whether that's circular economy, whether it's, you know, as we look around, we see, you know, every pop-up, you know, store, which is no plastics, where you refill your pantries, you know, the opportunity um, across social interactions, mobility, so active travel. And I think that's been really fundamental, but we're built to rent sort of stands in a separate kind of class in terms of sustainability is that built to rent developers, sort of owners and operators, they're ultimately going to hold the asset that we as architects are designing for them indefinitely for the long term. These are institutional assets. They can't afford for these assets to effectively date. If you look at what's happening from an institutional level at every level within the market, the the investment committees, you know, certainly when you get right up to the top, are not prepared to even entertain developments that are not going to achieve net zero carbon, that are not inherently sustainable. And that sits with their, their own, you know, institutional outlook in terms of ESG. So build to rent is not developing for now, it's developing for the next 30, 40, 50 years. And therefore, we as architects have the opportunity to be thinking about longevity, robustness, patterns of behavior, which all tie into why any specific development would be successful or not. And that extends beyond simply the, the sort of apartment market, but actually now a lot of the work we're doing, certainly with Cambridge, on built-to-rent family housing and, and new sites in Bedford. And it sounds though like a lot of the drivers have changed in terms of, as you mentioned, the people that want the housing in the first instance um, and the investors that are going to be involved as as well. But what, what about the policy piece here? So yeah. we know that the future home standard is coming in um, for, for example, but what's your take on, on, on this discussion and the role that it has to play? Because obviously no development exists on its, on its own. It's part of a community and a, a city or a region and then a country. No, I think I think the policy is changing fast. And I actually just had a presentation this morning um, on the new home standards and even looking at the emerging design code that's coming forward. Um, to contextualise it, we are working on um, actually the allocation of a new settlement through our master planning business in Worcester Parkway. And, and, and in allocating 10,000 homes, ultimately, we are not thinking about the way people live right now with a car outside their driveway. You know, that, that house builder model is starting to evolve. The policies that are coming forward in the way that we look at garden cities or garden towns are fundamental, you know, just in terms of movement. You know, the... We now look at, you know, we're looking at the 20-minute town, the modal shift, which is all of the amenities that you need for localization to keep us local and closer to home. But more than that, it's actually the promotion of active travel routes and pedestrian routes and shared mobility far above, you know, any, any design for cars and roads, which has got to be the most fundamental change we need to make. And we're working with a very interesting um, consultant called Mike Axon, and, and we all laugh because he uses the term vision and validate continuously. But he's right. 
we're not taking a measure of how many cars are on the road now and then designing streets for that for the future. We're, we're actually defining a vision of how we want, you know, you know, active travel and the modal shift and, and vehicular travel to change. What is that vision? And then let's validate that through our design. And that's a big change in terms of that. And then I think really what's also changing massively in line with a lot of the policies and the codes is not just the performance of houses on an individual basis, but actually how do we create microgrids? How are we looking at renewables in a way that this isn't a blight on the landscape? It's inherent to, to good placemaking. And I think that's that's a really critical shift and change in that actually that alignment between the infrastructural side and actually the final front door, the final house has come together so inherently. And, and looking at this new settlement, which will be allocated later this year, the amount of work that's been done ultimately on the sustainable aspect, you know, beyond simply green infrastructure and suds and solar panels on roofs has been really fundamental. It is about the pattern and way in which we live and how that needs to change. And I think as an architecture practice, we've been behind that, you know, so systemically and inherently in all of our designs. And actually now the policy is coming forward that is actually really allowing us to contextualize it, um, you know, within not now, but, you know, the first plan period of the settlement is for 2040 and beyond. I'm presuming that there's also sort of social facets to this vision and obviously policy here seems to be moving far slower than net zero. It's harder to quantify and there's no long term um, target on things like well-being and social sustainability. And you have mentioned that, yes, some people are feeling more connected to their communities, um, but it's also sort of this pandemic highlighted the ways in which infrastructure doesn't work for everyone and communities don't work. Um, for, for everyone. So what can be done to sort of vision, um, develop a vision and, and realise it on making cities and communities more, more inclusive too? Yeah, well, I think, I think the, you know, the funny thing about, about the pandemic is, you know, never before have we seen in Britain, probably since the war, you know, people coming outside and clapping on their streets. You know, I mean, that is a pattern of behaviour shift that's been absolutely fascinating to watch. You know, there is a new normal post-COVID. And I can talk about being led by the landscape and and activation through density or early delivery or, you know, the placemaking of bringing forward towns and high streets first. But actually, I think a huge shift that needs to be made is an enablement of the youth. And I think it's it's a very key thing that we're looking at is how the youth are probably, you know, if you think about your teenagers and, and sort of young millennials, in some ways, they're actually the most outside of some of the, the plan making process. But they are ultimately the future. You know, they are driving sustainability and that agenda far harder, actually, than actually, you know, some of the later later years. And I think that we need to to really enable the youth and we need to enable that because of the benefits it has through sort of intergenerational community making and thinking and actually allow people to do it in a much more um, vernacular way. So it's it's less prescribed from from the local authority. It's much more sort of curated by people on the ground. And it's about ultimately livable streets. It's about homes for everyone set within a way that promotes that. And I think that's probably been, you know, a really, really big shift. But if we want sustainability to be effectively integrated and inherent as part of actually a celebration of where we live and who we are, 
I think the youth are going to be a very key part of it. Um, and are often, I think in some ways, you know, the forgotten few. But for me, it's it's in approaching anything. It's really looking about, you know, the land use and the ecology and, and where what, what the place is. It's then looking at that community and culture so clearly and then understanding how you can promote that and work with that in order to look at, at the successes that we need in terms of health and well-being. Um, and that's probably the, the biggest focus that we have on those kind of key sectors and, and encouraging and, and driving um, a much more sort of, you know, collaborative, co-designed, community-based way of thinking in, in, in new design for homes. Joe, this is absolutely fascinating. I could talk to you all afternoon on this. Um, and I'm definitely going to have to give you a call back the next time we're looking at cities and communities. But that's all I have time for today. So thank you so much for your time. No problem. And thank you. Yes, many thanks once again to Jo there for her time. Such a super important and fascinating topic. Um, shameless plug on this. We've just published our SDG Spotlight Guide for Goal 11, Sustainable Cities and Communities. If you're interested in finding out more about how your organisation can contribute to sustainable placemaking, you can find that guide and download it for free by clicking Downloads in the top bar of ed.net. But back to today's agenda. Um, for our next guest, we're going to be moving from one sector that needs to front load the net zero transition to another, from the built environment to energy. Our second guest today is National Grid's Head of UK Strategy, Claire Dichter, who stepped into this super important role about a year ago. In our interview, we approach the choose to challenge topic by exploring how women can be supported to become challengers in energy and engineering and outlining why it's important to have diverse voices and skill sets in strategizing for and delivering net zero. For context, while women account for about one third of National Grid UK's senior roles, the UK's broader energy and engineering sector is around 88% male. So let's play that talk with Claire in full. Good morning, Claire. It's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. How are you? I'm really great, thank you. Uh, nice to um, speak to you this morning. And you? And are you, are you calling from at home today? I am. I'm at home um, uh, just awaiting the farmer across the road, um, moving his sheep. That's the excitement that's happening here this morning. <laughs> <laughs> the joys of the joys, isn't it, of working from home is noticing these little things. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for taking taking the time. I know it's your first time um, on our podcast and it's great, great to catch up. Um, I wanted to just dive straight into it and ask a little bit about what it's been like in your role um, over the past year, an unprecedented time, because I understand that you've been in position as head of UK strategy for a, for about a year. Um, so what was it like to step into that during sort of COP26 preparation and, and during the pandemic? Yeah, you're right. So I've been doing this role for about um, a year now and I went into it really excited um, about the roles. So more recently I've been doing operational roles. Um, so it was a great opportunity to kind of take a step back and look at the bigger picture and really think about the challenges um, facing the energy sector in the UK and how National Grid could um, really kind of take advantage and and try and move the industry forwards to net zero and and doing that role um as we were um you know going into preparations for cop was really exciting and i was really looking forward to that obviously um quite quickly after i started in role um we ended up in a completely different situation dealing with covid 
and um, COP being delayed. Um, but actually, from a strategy point of view, we we looked at kind of the, the macro trends and impacts of COVID, but very much stayed out of the day-to-day dealing with it and let the rest of, rest of the business get on with it because we were really clear that climate change is such an important issue and National Grid is so determined to be at the heart of the transition and really facilitate the transition that it was really important we didn't lose sight of that. So we we kept on working on that, even with COP being delayed and um, COVID coming up. Um, so that's really been my my focus in my role over the last year. We had Duncan on recently, Duncan Burt, the COP26 lead. So he talked a lot about some of the priority focus focus areas for for decarbonisation. So I presume you've been working on much of the same same stuff. It's such an amazing opportunity. I'm sure Duncan talked about how we're partnering with um, COP, so with the other partners um, and with other stakeholders that we're talking to, the ability to really be at the centre of that convention and try and influence what's happening um, is an amazing opportunity. And, and it's really given us some focus within National Grid to to look long term, look at decarbonisation pathways and trends and you know technologies and what we think will happen and um, what needs to change and evolve in the industry to facilitate that and then what we can do within National Grid to really push that forward. And I know that's a big responsibility and there have had to be a lot of big decisions um, about the low carbon transition and about energy infrastructure recently. But obviously we're here for International Women's Day um, this week. So I wanted to ask whether your role as head of UK strategy touches on things like diversity, talent, hiring and, and career progression. Yeah, so I I consider it part of my role, whatever role I'm doing, actually, to um, really be focused on um, diversity and inclusion. So I always say that the two things that motivate me and make me go to work are um, wanting to be at the centre of driving towards net zero and highlighting um, the importance of inclusion and diversity in the sector to getting there. So I'm I'm such a strong believer in that we just haven't faced the challenge of this size and scale before and thinking about problems and the way to do things the way we've done that in the past just won't get us there. So we need to think about things differently and that means having cognitive diversity right through the energy sector but it also means that um, there's such a huge engineering challenge. The UK has such an amazing engineering capability um, but only about 12% of the engineering workforce is female so there's such opportunity to kind of mesh those two things together and build upon our foundations of excellent engineering capability and skills but in a way that really opens the sector up and increases diversity so that we bring all of these like hugely capable and talented females into the engineering sector so that everyone benefits from not just their engineering expertise but a different way of looking at things and and different conversations to solve engineering challenges that will get us to net zero. 
So does National Grid have sort of specific frameworks or, or programmes in, in, in that space? We do. Um, so it's one of the reasons that I um, work for National Grid and love working for National Grid in that we take this really seriously. Um, so we estimate that about 400,000 new jobs are going to be required to deliver net zero. But obviously, engineering is such um, a key core focus of that. And whilst we have thought about how we can increase inclusion and diversity within National Grid, so for example, about a third of our senior leadership team are female at the minute, and we've committed that by 2025, um, we will aim to have half of our um, senior leadership team as females. But it's not just about removing barriers um, within the workplace it's about influencing females before they get anywhere near the workplace so when they're still at school and um, getting them interested in stem subjects and understanding the wide range of opportunities and careers that are out there so i've got um, a daughter she's nearly seven since a very early age she's been totally fascinated by wind turbines she calls them wind turbines <laughs> still can't say wind turbines she calls them wind turbines um, and she can explain to anyone um who will listen to her how they um how they work and how the electricity is generated um from them and you know you flip on a switch in your house and the lights come on and we need to create that kind of excitement and energy excuse the pun um in school children and get them interested in engineering um national grid has been involved in like initiatives in that area since i joined the company um but um specifically now is is doing that in an even more targeted way and looking to um specifically target diverse groups so We've partnered with uh, My Kind of Future and, and the aim of that programme is to reach 100,000 diverse young people across South London, developing their employability skills, but also encouraging them to um, consider careers in STEM and really kind of open up the world of opportunities to them. Fantastic. Great to hear about all of all of that. And we've talked a lot there about energy and engineering, but obviously I know that a big part of what you do and a big part of your academic and professional background is in management and in business um, and in strategy, which are other spaces that I'm sure some would say are really not gender diverse sometimes. So, so with that in mind and with this year's IWD theme in mind, which is Choose to Challenge, I wanted to get your views on how you think that women can challenge norms in, in the strategic space within sustainability or within the business space as well. Yeah, um, as you say, I'm um, I'm not actually uh, an engineer. I love engineering um, and I think actually in a previous life I maybe would have been an engineer mm -hmm. um, if I had been exposed to some of the types of programmes that we're talking about um, because it, it, I, I just wasn't when I was at school. Um, but you're completely right, the route that I've come through, say law and business and then and going into kind of corporate strategy can still be very male dominated. Um, partly that's to do with historical like legacy um, things such as working hours and um, ways of working and presenteeism. And all of those types of things 
need to be addressed. Um, I hope that COVID has actually provided an opportunity to address things like because it's been a real leveller in terms of um, people being at home. So looking very narrowly at people with children, but um, I think it, you know, everyone has been impacted by their children um, being at home. I think as we come out of COVID, we really do need to consider how we capture that and take it forward and don't lose any of that opportunity that it's created and really think differently about flexible working. So, you know, flexible working doesn't mean um, I get to go home at four o'clock every day. It's, it's like genuine flexibility. Where do you really need to be to do your job? Do you need to be in the office all the time? Can you do it from home? Can you do, you know, four hours in the day and some in the evening to work around commitments? Um, and I think the past 12 months has proven that actually um, certainly in the kind of um, office based profession, so the kind of more business management strategy side of things, it, it's very definitely possible to do that and it should be a real leveller. I definitely feel like the big question that we keep asking is, can we deliver a green recovery? Can any sector deliver a green recovery? Um, will this set us backwards and forwards? But that is the, the other big and in some ways interconnected question, isn't it? Sort of how, what does work actually actually look like in the near future? So, yeah, lots to consider there, Claire, and a great note to finish our conversation on. So thank you so much for your time. No problem. It's, um, it was lovely to speak to you. A big thank you once again to Claire, and I'm sure that we will catch up with her again ahead of COP26. For our third and final guest this episode, we're going to be hearing from a senior in-house sustainability professional, namely Tor Burrows from Grosvenor, UK and Ireland. Um, but before we do, I wanted to come to you, Rehan, for a quick update on what it means to be a woman in sustainability at this moment in time. Um, you've mentioned how Women in Sustainability connects thousands of professionals in this space. Mm. So I know you're going to have more of a bird's eye view of challenges and opportunities than I do. I'm usually squirrelling away on the news desk. Um, so I wanted to flag um, some of the results from the annual CSR salary survey first, um, which took quite a bird's eye view of this issue, in my opinion. The survey revealed that women account for about 55% of in-house sustainability directors in the UK, and 47% of sustainability consultancy directors, but that they're paid on average some £12,000 per year less than men in those same roles. Um, and beyond those top line figures, I wanted to get your view on the trends affecting professionals at all seniority levels. And you touched a little bit about on this on this earlier, but how have you seen the pandemic affecting women that are either in sustainability roles or those that are looking to enter those roles for the, for the first time? Thank you, Sarah. Well, I think like any sector, this impact of COVID on women is mixed. It is mixed. So you've got one hand furlough redundancy, you know, and dealing with grief those kind of those situations and on the other hand you've got loads of overworking high levels of anxiety and that that mental health toll of trying to work from home juggle caring responsibilities and so on so we know that's happening and that's very very real and I think businesses really need to to embrace that to understand that this impact of the pandemic has been completely unequal on the genders 
Um, a lovely story from a, a lady called Karen, who's part of our Women's Sustainability Oxford Hub. She just started a really very high technical role in an organisation in Easter last year. Very delighted to get this position. Everything she thought it was going to be. But of course, four year old son, she, you know, only six months into school. She did. She lasted six weeks. And then she had to resign because she could not do that juggle. She's very ambitious. She's very talented. And I think that's this. This is the impact that we're seeing on on many women. That is not an atypical story where you've got ambitious women who have if they've got this this juggle going on, will have will have taken a step back. And I've seen that time and time again, not just in sustainability professionals in house, but also those running their own small consultancies. Mm -hmm dropping clients dropping income and often that okay well I need to put my family first because at least I can do that but it is impacting women and it's impacting confidence it's impacting their progression and I, I am very concerned you know the research talks about gender um, equality being set back 50 years by this pandemic and as, as we know, you know, we, we need this diversity in thought leadership, in that in, in talent, in how we approach all these complicated um, problems that we, we're trying to solve here. And we, we cannot simply allow that to happen. And then when it comes to those trying to enter into uh, sustainability, I think there is a real danger that they get forgotten as well. And, and I think that this affects men and women. I know some good organisations are trying to buddy up. They, they understand the impact and the loneliness and the isolation from just being in your small flat or your, in your house share. Um, but we do need to see more awareness of, you know, 80% of learning in, in the workplace is from this informal peer-to-peer -peer learning. And that's really hard to do virtually, isn't it, online? How do you do that? How do you replicate that? So we've got to be very creative and understand um, those kind of um, the, the, the back foot, those younger professionals now are having right at the very start of the careers. But I'm also excited by seeing some wonderful entrepreneur thinking, you know, those graduates who have not been able to get into those roles. You know, they've been setting up their own startups. They've been they've been doing their own thing. Um, and some of the challenges they've had, you know, are common for, for women, I think, across the board. But, you know, the difficulties of getting heard in online meetings, how do you how do you deal with that? But I think what we need to see that it is is recognizing that it is it is mixed. But on the positives, there are some amazing positives. Um, and one of these things that I think we're seeing a far more humane or human connection between employer and employee. So suddenly all this invisible work that women, working women were doing, you know, it's been pulled right out in the open, hasn't it? With all those wonderful stories we see, you know, with children Zoom bombing and, and, and things like that. So that's become far more visible. And I think that's going to help or should help organisations now as we build back better to realise this is what women are doing. And I think we've clearly demonstrated that working from home and flexibility is possible. So I'm very hopeful if we can be creative enough, we can we can people, organisations, businesses can weave that back into how they work with women and make sure they they are uh, supported now uh, as, as we move forwards. Well, there you go. If you're listening from a business position, you know what to do. And if you're listening um, as as a sustainability professional, here are some things to ask for. Um, this is all such such important information, and I'm sure it's going to resonate with a lot of the listeners for this episode. We're going to explore these issues a little more in this interview with Tor um, and get her views on how sustainability and innovation are both opportunities for choosing to challenge. Here is that interview in full. 
Well, good afternoon, Tor. It's such a pleasure to be chatting today. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Sarah. I'm delighted to be on your podcast, so thank you for having me. No, and good to see you again so soon after the, the, the forum. I know it was pretty hectic during that, so sorry we couldn't catch up on the day. Not at all. It was um, a brilliant event. I thoroughly enjoyed my panel, so um, yeah, great, great to be chatting. I enjoyed it too, but I'm aware that a lot of people listening might not have. And I know that at the panel, you talked a lot um, with Solly about sort of your your career and how you came to be in this sustainability role that you're in within real estate and asset management. Um, but for the benefit of people that weren't there or for those that were and might want a refresher, um, could we recap on that? Of course. So, yeah, I suppose... Um, you know, I've always had a really deep passion for sustainability, but I actually started off my career with a fairly traditional uh, property path in asset and investment management, as you say. Then lots of some little events and different roles led to, led to my current role, actually. So I'll just I'll just take you through that journey. So mm -hmm. after many years of asset management, I did a strategy role at Grosvenor. So, and that was really looking at the future of our London estate, which is a mixed use urban property portfolio. And it really involved looking at some long-term trends and risks, you know, understanding the resilience of cities and places in an age of climate change, which, you know, I really enjoyed probably much more than I thought I would. Um, and then I took on a project which was really interesting. So it looked at the redesign of Grosvenor Square in central London, which very much had environmental sustainability at its heart. So Grosvenor Square, just to give a, a bit of background, is the second largest garden square in London. Um, it's actually bigger than Trafalgar Square, which I'm always surprised at. Um, so it was an amazing opportunity to work on a project that's looking to transform this green space and create a more inclusive environment and the project really prioritized environmental outcomes it was really trying to redefine the role of green spaces in cities and sort of how you measure the success of them from an environmental perspective so you know whether it's biodiversity soil health carbon sequestration air quality so I learned a huge amount from that project um, and then that role really morphed into a broader placemaking role where I took on sort of the leadership of a sustainability team but it was really part of a much wider and broader team um, and then eventually after lots of studying postgraduate uh, certificate in, in sustainability um, my current role decided to dramatically increase our ambition around sustainability. So he created a new position on, on his executive team, which is my current role. Mm -hmm. So this role is, is leading our sustainability agenda alongside a small team and you know really making sure it's embedded into all decision making across the business. So I feel incredibly lucky to do the role at this time in particular. I think the opportunity is enormous to focus on you know, sustainability but also behavioural change, uh, delivery and action so yeah very very exciting. Mm. I've been writing some reports recently, shameless plug for my own work here, um, <laughs> on sustainable offices and on SDG 11 cities and communities and it does feel like that there is this moment in time at the moment so yeah glad to get you on the phone. Absolutely. Um, 
at this moment. And yeah, I wanted to touch on on your role and the fact that it is both linked to innovation and sustainability, which I think is something that I see a lot of businesses looking at um, at, at the moment. And I think it chimes nicely with the theme of IWD this year, which is choose to challenge and innovation is obviously all about challenging. Um, so I wanted to ask about how you see innovation and challenges as fitting in um, with the transition to a more sustainable future. I know that's yeah. a super broad question. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. Great question. And of course, you know, it was no coincidence that both sustainability and innovation were in my job description, because I think there's a broad recognition that in order to achieve our green goals and um, you know, transform to a more sustainable future, we're going to have to do things differently and we're, and we're going to have to innovate. So, you know, from, from a Grosvenor perspective, um, you know, we're a 340 year old business, but we very much recognise that what has worked and been successful in the past won't necessarily mean we're successful in the future. So I think, you know, choose to challenge is exactly right. We've got to adapt, we've got to change and we've got to challenge the status quo. And we've been thinking a lot about this actually as a property business and really how we evolve and what it means to be a landlord or as I like to think a bit more of a partner in five in ten years time you know what could our role in our communities be and our role in the climate emergency and I think our long-term outlook enables us to think a bit differently about our partnership approach you know with our tenants with our suppliers with other stakeholders to really address some of our societal and planetary problems together so I suppose fundamentally we're challenging the traditional role of a landlord to create a sustainable future um, and I also think that um, there is a need to be sort of transformational from a high level point of view Mm -hmm. like I've just described, but also empowering people to challenge sort of day-to-day -day decision making as well. So we've recently launched uh, a sort of employee-led innovation program at Grosvenor, which is all about challenging the status quo, you know, being more curious, identifying and solving problems and thinking of better ways to do things for our business, the communities we work with uh, and, and the environment, of course. So I hope this will sort of enable uh, a culture that is more comfortable trialing new things, you know, failing and learning. Um, as you know, as you you well know, Sarah, the, the situation we're in is so unprecedented, and I'd much rather people challenge and try and do things differently, even if they're not successful straight away, rather than not trying at all. And I so suppose just another take on your question, which I might just finish on, is. Mm -hmm. We launched our net zero carbon pathway last year, so that's in, uh, which will result in us being um, net zero by 2030 and at least a 52% reduction in our whole value chain emissions for our business. And I suppose following the launch of that last year, we you know, challenged the way the business approached sustainability to ensure it's completely fully integrated from you know, right from the board all the way down to graduates and across the business. So in the delivery of our green goals and our pathway, we're, we've developed roadmaps for each team in the business, which includes shorter term, but also longer term goals. 
um, each owned by an executive. So they take responsibility to deliver them and integrate them into their team. Um, and the in-year goals, so the annual goals, are very much part of goal setting. Um, so I suppose just to sum that up, I, I really believe it will be a monumental effort uh, and collective effort in challenging the status quo to, to address the crisis that we're in. Fantastic. And you mentioned the, the the need to both empower people to get the change off the board and make sure that it's in, embedded and people are key to that. And there have been so many studies in uh, how the positive impacts of that are best when there are a range of different people um, on there as well. So um, in the introduction here, I've talked about some statistics in about women in sustainability, um, but I wanted to get your views on whether you think there is like a good environment for women in real estate or or asset management, and and if not, what could be done to to help change that? Yeah, I think I mean it's a, a really interesting question. I think from my own experience, I think sustainability. Um, the sustainability field in real estate is probably one of the more balanced sectors, um, possibly because it's a sort of newer field in real estate or it's certainly increased in popularity recently compared to some of the more traditional real estate disciplines, which are absolutely further behind. Um, and you know, my team, I think we're exactly 50-50 men and women. So that's very balanced. But I think there is definitely a challenge in the wider real estate sector and something we we absolutely all need to work on and then just touching on some of the things that we need to change I, I mean I think I think visibility is a good start mm-hmm. um you know I think personally you know I'm not just really proud and feel very lucky to be leading our sustainability function but also pleased to be part of a very balanced executive committee at Grosvenor so there's actually more women than men on on our executive team more recently but I suppose overall um for property I feel like we need to broaden what it means to people at much more of an emotional level you know the sector is changing and needs to change more significantly into the future I think some of the traditional roles are giving way to new skills skills in real estate you know mm-hmm. of course sustainability is one of them but also we've touched on innovation I think managing change is critical um obviously the, the theme of this podcast you know digital technology community engagement there's there's so many and I, I could go on but you know I, I personally think real estate is a fascinating sector it you know it touches every element of our lives from how we live, work, you know, the green spaces that we play in, how we shop and spend leisure time. You know, if we create, can create and manage places that are resilient and sustainable, I mean, I personally think that's a really exciting career. But there's definitely a need to communicate this better to encourage more people and more women and you know, a, a diverse set of voices um, into the sector. Great. Well, Tor, I think that's all the time we have booked in today. But I, as you say, we could talk about this all afternoon. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, no, it was an absolute pleasure to, to chat to you, Sarah. And um, thank you very much. Yes, a big thank you once again to Tor, our last guest for this episode. Rianne, I hope you've enjoyed recording this episode as much as I have. I certainly feel inspired and ready to start the weekend. I don't know about you. 
Definitely. No, thank you, Sarah. It's been really, really uh, lovely being here with you today. And with you. But before we sign off, I want to take a quick moment to just flag our next online event. So our next chance is for you to join the discussion. This coming Wednesday, that's March 10th, I'm going to be chairing our next online masterclass, which is all about energy efficiency. This 45 minute session is being hosted in association with the Carbon Trust and with Bayes. We also have an expert speaker from Bam Nuttall. You can find full details and sign up by visiting ed.net and clicking events, then webinars and masterclasses. Also, by following that link pathway on our site, you can find more information about our circular economy inspiration sessions. These are three hour long interactive online events that are taking place on the afternoon of March 25th. We've got a stellar lineup of expert speakers representing organisations including IKEA, Body Shop, Innovate UK, the London Waste and Recycling Board and HPE. So if you're helping your organisation on its resource efficiency journey or helping it innovate with new circular products or business models, this is one you will not want to miss. Once again, you can find both events at ed.net, click events, then webinars and masterclasses. Rianne, before before we sign off, do you have anything special coming up that you'd like to, to make the listeners aware of? Yes, I do. I mean, I guess just two things. One is um, please uh, consider letting your uh, female employees attend our Women's Sustainability Network at Hub events. Um, we know they really um, serve a purpose by creating that connection and peer support. And also we are reopening our digital community, our membership offer for women's sustainability. That actually opens out on Tuesday at the 9th of March. So go and check that out and see if that's for you. That's at womeninsustainability.net forward slash subscribe and you can find out all about what that digital community can offer to yourself or to your your female colleagues uh, and employees thanks very much Sarah no thank you great and I hope to see you yes at all of these things but until next time it's a goodbye from Rianne goodbye everybody thank you and a goodbye from me goodbye goodbye